Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. I'm Dr. Helena Jolly, a scientist who studies human-nature relationships and your host today at yet another amazing episode of Biodiversity Speaks. Today, we have a political ecologist in the studio. Her research focuses on implications of China's growing investments in land and other resources across the world. She's a new faculty at the University of British Columbia and is here to speak about her work on human-induced changes in the landscape, especially in the expansion of monoculture crops in Asia. Please welcome Dr. Juliet Liu, Assistant Professor of Environmental Governance and Business. Hello, Juliet. Welcome to Biodiversity Speaks. Thanks, Helena. Happy to be here. Thank you for taking your time to join us today. Of course. Yeah, it's my pleasure. A political ecologist. That is super cool, Juliet. Before we start speaking about your wonderful research and other awesome things you're up to, tell our listeners, who is a political ecologist? Yeah, there's three pieces, I think, to understanding political ecology. And the first two are deceptive. So it's not really politics and it's not really ecology. So I say not really politics because um, political ecology is more like um, it looks into things about power, right? So politics is power, but not limited to the sense of like organized government or formal policies. You're tracing who has the power in relationships. Um, and it's not really ecology either in the sense that political ecology came about at a moment when the world was waking up to the importance of environmental issues more broadly. Um, so, you know, it started coming about through thinking in the 70s and 80s. Ecologists and other people that working in the environmental field weren't really thinking enough about human dimensions. They weren't thinking about, you know, either the impacts or the drivers of environmental problems as being deeply connected to the, to to humanity. Um, and it was so it was a stage when the natural and human worlds were seen, at least by people in like economically powerful countries, as separate. So it came from a lot of people who were politically economists. Originally, and those people tend to foreground the role of, you know, capitalist markets and state forces in shaping the world. But it has come to, to kind of um, glob onto a bunch of different fields. So political ecology is very um, kind of problem focused. And the third piece of it, I think, it's considered a critical field. So <laughs> you could say that in the sense that political ecologists maybe like criticizing things. The idea of being critical is, um, you know, I think of it as focused on inequality, focused on power differentials as things that make social change and conflict. And, and I think another piece of being critical is that you're not just looking at abstract theory. Um, you're looking actually at empirical work, grounded work, engaging the public and thinking about the origins of conflict in the hopes that you can envision and hopefully enable positive change. So not exactly political, but power, not exactly ecology, but about environmental conflicts and kind of a critical approach to things. Wow, that that's really interesting. And in some sense, I would say political ecologists are truly interdisciplinary scholars yeah, sure. with a deep inclination to study impact of policies and politics on environment. Yeah, I think that's a great read. Definitely interdisciplinary. Okay, great. And that makes it rather a unique discipline of study, I must say. So, Juliet, tell us, how did you get interested in this field? Yeah, um, so I, after college, didn't really know what I was going to do. And so I I went to China and I found a job kind of translating and um, helping with report writing at the World Agroforestry Center. It was, um, they had a center just kind of recently opened in Yunnan, China, which is where I had chosen to move to. 
And it was a really exciting moment in, for China's environmental history. So it was a moment when, um, you know, 10 years before I got there around, I got there in 2009. And about 10 years, a little over 10 years before China had established this huge national logging ban. And since then, they'd been doing all these reforestation and afforestation programs, big initiatives around payments for ecosystem services, the establishment of a national protected area system. So it felt like a moment when China was like, turning the entire tide on its approach to the environment. And it was also an exciting time for me personally. Like I had grown up, my dad is Chinese. He was born in Guangzhou. And um, he'd like always told me that China was so backwards, so underdeveloped. Why would I want to visit that? Just wait for my, he literally was like, why would you go there? You can just look it up online. (laughs) (laughs) You can see photos on Google images. But suddenly I think in the late 2000s, China was becoming an economic leader in the world. And so by moving there after college, I was hoping to get to know my family Um, and my dad's home country better. Um, But it felt like a place that was really kind of active. So when I was living in Yunnan, I used to have to make trips to Laos, which is um, a country that borders the province of Yunnan in southwest China. And I'd have to like renew my visa. So I'd just like hop on a 40-hour bus and go south. And I was always on these sleeper buses with Chinese businessmen. And they were doing all of these things. They were trading timber. They were opening up agricultural investments. They were doing mining. And I kind of realized that all the good things that were happening environmentally in China were pushing demand that China had um, over the border into poor, less regulated neighboring countries like Myanmar, Laos, um, to some extent into Vietnam. And so I just started realizing that when you have environmental winds in some place, there's always kind of trade-offs. And and so I moved to Laos kind of soon after that and worked for a project that was studying the influx of foreign land investment. And so that was Chinese land concessions were a big part of that, Vietnamese and, and Thai as well, and, and, and other um, foreign investors were super active in Laos um, in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And so, yeah, I started realizing that it was so complex. I, you know, I was working on kind of development research projects that were six to 12 months. But I just like, I didn't feel like I could grasp kind of the deeper dynamics of what was happening. And so, yeah, at the time, I didn't know what political ecology was. It wasn't like I went into things um, with the idea that I wanted to be in a specific discipline or field. But um, I worked with a, a lovely scholar named Mike Dwyer. And he's just really good at kind of following the money, following market dynamics, pulling at little hints of things that I was I was finding in interviews that were confusing me um, and like helping me see how they were connected to bigger structures of power or, you know, introducing me to like con- contextual histories of land management or like agricultural reform in Laos. And it everything kind of started clicking into place with me. So I was kind of realized I wanted to go back to school to just have a bigger chunk or chunk of time um, to have a bigger chunk of time to kind of figure out the bigger picture. So, yeah. This is interesting. So your transition into political ecology was kind of very intentional, but also kind of organic. Accidental right? too, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very, very nice. So primarily, Juliet, your work focuses on the region of Southeast Asia mm-hmm. and engage in various inquiries, learn learning about investment of China and its impact on agricultural and landscape management in Laos, mm. especially through rubber plantations. So how did you end up studying this particular research topic about yeah. rubber plantations and monoculture related to that. Yeah. So when I came into Laos, I mean, rubber was the biggest kind of raw material that, that Chinese investment was going into. China is also involved in mining in Laos, but um, but rubber was the biggest agricultural crop that, that Chinese investors were 
were getting involved in. And there was, especially part of this was because there was a boom in rubber planting in the 2000s. So I, I moved from China to Laos in 2011. Um, and at that point, like the, the just, I kind of chose rubber because it was like the biggest concessions that had been granted to Chinese companies for agriculture were in rubber. And then from there, you know, the importance of rubber just became more and more interesting to me. So um, I just followed the rubber trail, I guess, into graduate school. Nice. So my next question is basically like, is rubber native to these places or is it like just in Laos or rest of China? Do they have rubber? No, it's it's a, it's, it's an outsider. So rubber was um, found in originally in Brazil, huh. um, in the Brazilian Amazon. And yeah, rubber has a great history of like biopiracy and <laughs> and espionage and things like that. There's a chapter in the book, um, 1493, that's really good. But it was literally like rubber plants were stolen by a British guy um, taken to colonial countries like India and Malaysia and, and Indonesia and it was a yeah, it became a plantation crop in Southeast Asia, and it didn't really reach China until the U.S. put an embargo. Well, we led the kind of Western world in putting an embargo on, on China and the Soviet Union, for a bunch of different imports during the Korean War, including um, rubber. Which uh, yeah, it's just a it's a hugely important crop in many ways. So not endemic to China, not endemic to to Southeast Asia, and in fact. It really has only moved from island Southeast Asia up into mainland Southeast Asia in the last, um, yeah, in the last 50 years, wow. basically. Yeah, it's a that, new thing. That's fascinating. There's another set of like colonial trail. And, oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Part of how different crops reach different parts of the world. That's exactly. really interesting. And how after reaching it started dominating the entire economy of those regions in some way or the other. Yeah. So rubber in Asia, I know that it's a very important commodity and growth of rubber industry has led to transformation of many crop plants into monoculture plantations. So in the early 90s, even in places like India, rubber fever was major. Right. Um, I remember my father who owned rubber plantations in Kerala, which is a province in south of India, and have this vivid memory and conversations around conversion of farmlands into rubber. So, mm. Juliet, I'm curious to understand how the entire Asia became obsessed with rubber. Like, what was the reason behind it? Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, so, you know, all, uh, cash crops in general all have, like, different cachet and where the places what they're, where they're grown. But rubber has just been one of the most enduring crops that we've been obsessed with as humankind. So, first of all, I think it's it's interesting to me because there's it's a weird connection across different sectors. So, you know, it's produced in agricultural systems. It's a tree crop. It's something that you have to, you know, obviously plant in the ground and wait to harvest. Um, but its uses, its applications are largely industrial. So, usually people think of things like tires. But rubber was also like it was initially became, like you said, the obsession of colonial powers because it was so useful in waterproofing things. So, you know, like rubber boots, of course, um, and it makes things bounce. It absorbs shock and it absorbs extremely high temperatures and extreme levels of friction. So it's it's something that basically, you know, during the colonial era, it was really important for waterproofing things like ships and other and other like equipment. But as the world became, you know, really pushing towards industrialization, the use of machinery in every aspect of life, rubber tubes, rubber belts, latex products like gloves. Um, I mean, these things became really emblematic of of industrialization and modernization. And and the second reason that rubber is an obsession of all these places is that 
it, it ha- we haven't found a good substitute for rubber. So mm. natural natural rubber itself is part of it's an ingredient in um, uh, synthetic rubber. But there are a number of things that arguably are the most important kind of rubber products, like you know tires that would be used in a, I don't know jet planes or big trucks. Um, those things still require a high level of natural rubber to be. Um, to, to perform the way that they do. But yeah, so it's it's just, it hasn't, we haven't found a good substitute for it in hundreds of years. And it's something where, you know, unlike a lot of other raw materials that are important for industrialization and for, um, for like the modern world to function, um, rubber is an agricultural crop, which is a very strange thing. Um, it's a, it's an interesting kind of crossing of worlds. That That's true. And also, like, in some ways, I, I find, like, the rubber boom is different from many other plantation booms, mm. like the vanilla or, like, many other things that happened in Asia. Like, how much do you think it's economically driven and how much of it is politically driven? Yeah, I mean, it's different in different places. Um, but in Indonesia, you've seen kind of oil palm pushing rubber out. And that's been – there's always political aspects. Of course, like I said at the beginning, um, I'm basically always looking as a – Thinking as a political ecologist involves thinking of the politics, right? Um, thinking of the power kind of dynamics behind things and the reasons that states get involved in things. But, for example, like the reasons that rubber is, you know, less and less planted in Indonesia is partly because oil palm has become more profitable. You have a very different dynamic where I work on the China-Laos border, partly because China considers rubber a strategic crop and has been promoting rubber since the 1950s against all market odds. And of course, China was a state-led economy for many decades, but China still today kind of considers rubber really key. They really want to keep some domestic rubber being planted, and they want to keep a good connection um, to rubber production in neighboring countries um, so that they don't go through the kind of panic that they had when they were under embargo. So rubber is also a little bit different than other cash crops that um, that constitute boom crops, as um, some of my research has called them, in part because it's a longer-term crop. So when mm-hmm. you plant monoculture maize or you plant monoculture cassava, you're committed for a year, a season sometimes. You know, you plant bananas, you're committed for three to six years. Rubber kind of matures in seven to nine years, and it it, um, can be productive if well-managed for up to 35 years, 25 to 35 years. And so a tree crop oftentimes it just it's classified differently, and because it's so long living and so long um, productive for so long, it ends up being something that transforms um, landscapes in a much more permanent way, and as such, it kind of transforms relations around property on the land that rubber is planted in different ways as well. Um, so rubber is so permanent that it it represents a shift in ownership of land and a shift in the way land is managed that it feels very permanent compared to other crops. Another weird thing about rubber is that it's it's pretty productive on sloping lands. And so especially in Southeast Asia, there's always historically been a a pretty big divide between uplands and lowlands, right? You have um, the lowlands where people were very connected by, by, by waterways, which was the main way of transport for most of, you know, most of history. And people in the, the mountainous areas that were further away from governments, further away from markets. Um, and that, you know, as rubber grows on places that a lot of other cash crops don't grow in the hills on, on on steeper sloping lands. It is something that has extremely environmentally damaging because um, 
you know, rubber can be planted in places where some of the remaining forests were some of um, the less touched or more less intensively used spaces in Southeast Asia were. Um, and so it has, it grows by the na by nature of being longer term and by nature of growing different types of places, rubber has had implications for land um, control and for even for ideas of like territory and state power, mm. if you will. And it has also had implications for environmental systems, for land management approaches that are much more permanent and and unique because of that. At the same time, I think it's important to stress that, you know, rubber still is a cash crop. People still respond to market signals. Um, and so the rubber boom in Southeast Asia was happening for a lot of these reasons that rubber is different, also for reasons that, um, you know, China favors rubber. And a lot of countries in Southeast Asia consider rubber and other tree crops a form of forest. So this is a whole other can of worms. But beyond those kind of like political classifications and things like that that made it appeal, there were just really high prices in rubber um, in the 2000s that also mm -hmm. kind of really contributed to how fast and how eagerly people planted rubber across across the uh, the region. Wow. Yeah. Th yeah, this is really fascinating because the rationale for a crop boom is not just economical, political, sometimes it's ecological and geographical, like the way you've described. Yeah, and I would actually say that, you know, Many more things that we are willing to admit are not economically rational. So, I mean, the whole idea of, of market logic is overstated sometimes. But, but yeah, definitely in Rubber's case, lots of political interventions are at work in its boom. That, that makes complete sense. And um, from your experience in Laos and Rubber plantations, have you come across plantations, monoculture plantations are just one crop? Or do you see like a tendency of people to like mixed crops or like, you know, have a combination of crops? Because mm. that's something I've noticed, like in places like India, they grow peas and, you know, like leguminous right, plants. Right, right, right. So is that a, something that you see in Laos and Southeast Asia or is it just... Yeah, definitely. The thing about um, rubber and a lot of other crops really in general, but especially rubber, is that it grows well with others. Um, it, it, it can be intercropped pretty easily. And also, just when you think about the kind of production cycle of rubber, smallholders and, you know, farmers who have decision-making power and agency over um, kind of how how and what they grow – oftentimes choose to plant rubber non-intensively, right? Not in monoculture. So you'll see people that plant it, that plant a grove of rubber to, you know, for their for their son or daughter to harvest in five to 10 years. They, they will plant small patches um, among other types of tree crops. In Brazil, rubber is a jungle kind of, it grows amongst a lot of other trees oh. and plants in the jungle and in Indonesia as well. Like rubber is not grown intensively, um, I didn't in in all places. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Really so so what we actually have to do is ask ourselves, why is monoculture planted, right? So there's so much kind of assumption, and this is all throughout history, you know, since plantations in the colonial era and long before then when monoculture plantations are promoted as efficient, more profitable, uh, more logical, more clean, all these things that we attribute them to. Rubber is a great kind of crop to push against that narrative because it 
when people are given the choice, a lot of times they choose to grow rubber and it grows well in less intensive systems and systems that are sharing the landscape with um, other types of uses and other crops. So so not necessarily monoculture. And really the, the driving question of my research of a lot of it is why favor monoculture? Why? Which actors are interested in promoting monoculture and why do they promote that? Because sometimes, you know, the, the economic assumptions around monoculture really need to be tested and, 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 yeah, and pushed against. Wow. So while I understand that monoculture plantations and associated economy boom will have positive impact on livelihood, however, what happens to the traditional crops there, food crops there? Do they get displaced by these crash crops? Yeah, so this is a that's a great question. So monoculture in general is oftentimes promoted as something that will bring um, livelihood benefits for people, right? Either it'll, it'll employ more folks or it will um, provide more profits to to poor farmers. So first of all, I would actually say that, you know, the the research has not shown that to consistently be true. Oftentimes the number of jobs, especially that are created under monoculture or commercial agriculture, Systems do not actually end up being as numerous as they expected. They are subject to a lot of competition and pre- pressure for profitability. They oftentimes don't come about to be what pro- what was promised. Um, but then you have a really good point about displacement of food crops, right? So rubber has been promoted in China and Laos and many other places as a poverty alleviation contributor. Um, and don't get me wrong, in many places you know, profits from rubber are real and they're beneficial. And they, it's, a, it's a really great crop for smallholders, especially. And like I said, many people mix it into kind of more complex systems. And rubber can be like a very good crop for a rainy day. Uh, some of the farmers that I've interviewed, they call it their green bank because they plant it and it's like an investment that grows later on to kind of for a rainy day. So it can be profitable and really good um, for livelihoods, but it takes seven to nine years to start producing latex. Um, so that's always a challenge for folks. And in the places that I work, a lot of farmers basically have to displace their their production. So they'll plant rubber um, on, a, on a certain amount of land, and then they have to go to another place in order to plant upland rice for their family, for their family's kind of annual rice quota. They'll have to plant vegetables and stuff in other places. And oftentimes this means that they'll move into more remote or sometimes more forested or otherwise more biodiverse landscapes. So that's kind of one piece of it. So, but like there's a bigger problem that's not only with rubber, which is that agriculture is, you know, agriculture is the leading driver of forest conversion and biodiversity loss. But most agricultural land is not actually devoted to things that humans directly eat, right? So according to a study by um, led by Emily Cassidy in 2013 at the University of Minnesota, only 55% of crop calories that the world grows go to people. The rest goes mostly to biofuels, animal feed, um, you know, uh, rubber would I think be in the other category, quote unquote. But yeah, a huge amount of um, land that is under agricultural production is for things like rubber. And that's, uh, I think, one of the biggest questions we have to keep inserting into conversations about food security. Hmm. That, that's really interesting point. And the whole conversation about like the cash, uh, cash crops and the food crops brings me to this other dimension on local biodiversity. So Southeast Asia, as we know, is some of the largest biodiversity hotspots in the world, home to several endemic flora and fauna. So making these monoculture plantations in some ways a threat to the local biodiversity, right? So have you come across any such results in your study or do you have a story or experience from the field that you would like to share? Yeah, you you point to a really important aspect, which is 
the story of the rubber boom in Laos and other places, including China, I don't think it can be fully understood without also understanding the history of what rubber has replaced. And a big piece of this is shifting cultivation, Mm -hmm. um, especially in the upland areas of Laos and other Southeast Asian countries. Shifting cultivation has actually been something that the Lao government and a lot of governments in Southeast Asia have been um, trying to reduce for, I would say, the last 40 years. And um, part of that is because it has the reputation of being um, damaging to the environment, a reputation which has been widely questioned. Um, And the bigger issue, I think, is that shifting cultivation, even since the colonial era, was seen as a threat to basically to logging interests that the state had. So if you have people going, using the forest in a light, less intensive way, but nevertheless kind of cutting into forests as they produce, um, yeah, this was seen as a threat to the state's claims to to um, valuable timber areas in the uplands. And so shifting cultivation has, and there's a very much more complex kind of history of shifting cultivation, um, but it's important that rubber has very much replaced a lot of shifting cultivation spaces. And that's not only about the positive or the the desirable aspects of rubber in the eyes of investors or farmers or the Lao government. It also has to do with what it's replacing. And and those more biodiverse shifting cultivation systems um, have their own history of their relationship with the state. This is so interesting, Juliet. And I'm so happy that you joined the University of British Columbia. And I'm sure a lot of students will be like dying to join your lab. So tell me more about your work here. And what is the next cool thing you're going to do? Yeah, um, it's it's a, such a great place to be. The U- UBC has so much going on um, uh, in the things that I study and all the things that are kind of tangentially relevant to it. Um, so I kind of work at the intersection of global China, which you can think of as you know, Chinese capital, Chinese people, Chinese investors um, engaging in the rest of the world, um, going beyond their borders, and then political ecology, which we talked about. Um, So my own research, I'm going to be looking at crop booms. Um, My plan is to, I work very much like with specific kind of case studies on the ground. So usually small scale qualitative case studies. Um, And I'm looking to work with people that are interested in land change science that that do kind of larger scale analysis of of land use change, which is something I did a lot in Laos. But yeah, so looking at how crop booms are moving through uh, different regions, why monoculture is promoted and why they catch on so quickly, what conditions allow that, which has a lot to do with land politics. It has a lot to do with how global markets um, affect individual spaces. So yeah, I'll be looking at crop booms pushed by China and other actors, politics around the kind of transnational land investments by Chinese and other actors, and environmental and development aspects of China's growing presence in the world more broadly. I'm also working with a collaborator, Tyler Harlan. We are calling it China's green soft power, how China's Mm -hmm. kind of increasingly try to embrace kind of environmental leadership within its bigger push to engage in development aid more. And yeah, I'm really excited to be at UBC because the two departments I'm in, um, the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, as well as uh, the Department of Forest Resources Management, they're just both really exciting places to have these conversations at the intersection of China and the environment. And I'm really excited to have students join my research group and help me out. So 
so yeah, those are my those are my bigger plans. And then within the iBIOS uh, cluster, I think you know thinking through why monoculture gets pushed instead of diverse landscapes, uh, the politics of of um, of land use change are are all kind of on my mind for for collaborating and and um, working with that larger group. No. Oh. So if there are any prospective grad students listening, I would say close, pay close attention to Juliet and Juliet's yeah. work. Chat with me. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Juliet, for this wonderful discussion. I've learned so much today. Thank you, Helena. Yeah, it's, it's so wonderful to chat with you. And, and yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you want to hear more about Biodiversity Speaks, you can follow us on our socials at iBios Program on Twitter and Instagram handles. This episode is hosted by me, Helena Jolly, edited by Liam Reed, and assisted by Emma Jarek Simard. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, but until we meet again, think of how large monoculture plantations and how they impact the local environment. <laughs>